Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. I wasn't sure exactly how many people would be here, or maybe some would be in mourning. Sorry about the game last night. Uh, you guys stay up and watch it. I just want to say that my team, the Broncos, are still in it, <laughs> at least for today. Shared with you some time ago that after Bible college and a one-year internship, uh, my wife Tana and I moved our one-year-old son to Colorado Springs, hence the Broncos, where I, I was to serve as an associate pastor in a Bible church. It was, a, it was actually kind of a small church, only about 60 people, but, but, but that's okay. We were, we were rather young and, and idealistic. The senior pastor was a friend of mine that had gone to school with, and he was two and a half years older than I was, and he got there first, so he got to be the senior pastor. Uh, he also got the salary. That meant I had to work in a, in a local bank during uh, the day uh, to pay the, the bills, but that was okay. We were young and, and idealistic. I, I was 24, and he was a ripe old age of 27. A few months, we thought, maybe a couple of years at the bank, and the church would grow, and I'd soon be full-time at the church. Did I mention that we were young and idealistic? A year later, our second son was born, another mouth to feed, another person to fit into our two-bedroom apartment, but no problem, we thought. It was only going to be a matter of time. Uh, three years later, our third son was born, but, but, but that's okay. We were now living in a three-bedroom, single-wide mobile home. Well, the third bedroom barely fit the crib, but, but, but that's okay. We were still young, but not quite so idealistic anymore. Eight very long years later, the church had doubled in size. It was a whopping 120, not quite large enough for me to be, be paid, so I continued to, to work at the, at the bank. I was 32 then. Senior pastor was 35. But hey, it was, it was only a matter of time. We had lots of people, you see, visit the church. They just, well, they just wouldn't stay. I, many times, at least in those early years, they would cite the fact that we were so, well, we were so young. They, they couldn't be part of a church where the pastors were young enough to be their sons or even worse, their grandsons. So that year, those eight very long years later, our oldest son turned nine. Tana looked at me on his birthday and said, we've now had him half as long as we're going to. That hit me hard. I'd been working two full-time jobs for his entire life. So three months later, I quit the non-paying job, left vocational ministry for three years. Now, Tana will tell you that, that was, those three years were the best years of our married lives. Uh, I only worked 40 hours a week, maybe a little more. We actually bought a house, four bedrooms. Everybody had their own room. We actually had space to move around and collect more junk. Uh, by that time, I had gone to work for a Christian credit union that, 
this credit union provided financial services to evangelical organizations and their staff, especially mission organizations. Really love that. So my job was to call on all those Christian organizations like the Navigators and Young Life and Focus on the Family and Association of Christian Schools International and Christian Missionary Alliance. You see, there were 80 national and international ministry organizations in Colorado Springs, like there's Samaritan's First Year. There were 80 of them there. And it was my job to try and get their banking business. And I got to call on churches, lots of churches, too. I'd invite them to lunch, and we talk about their respective ministries for about the first 45 minutes of the lunch hour, I on the edge of my seat. Then, then we talk about, you know, checking accounts and money markets and direct deposit and controlled disbursement and stuff like that. Nothing wrong, you see, with any of those things. In fact, I, we were successful, I, I guess, exceeding our financial goals. So I was making good money. I was, I was miserable. God had placed a call on my life to serve Him in the church of Jesus Christ. To, to finish the story, three years later, I had the opportunity to join the, the staff of one of those churches, a Christian Missionary Alliance church in Colorado Springs. It was actually a, a paying position, not much, mind you, but enough to, to, to quit the bank and do what God had called me to do many years before. After a couple of, of years there, we moved here to Boone when I was no longer quite so young, 37, 13 years after beginning that ministry journey, and I was no longer idealistic, but hopefully wiser, and hopefully less dependent on youthful ambition and naive enthusiasm, and more dependent on the sovereign control of a very good God. So, so what would I say to my young self of 30 years ago now? What would I say? What, what would I say to the young guys? You know, those 20 and 30-somethings coming up behind me. You know, the Scots and the, and the Michaels and the, and the Patricks and the Steves. What, what, what would I say to them? Oh, oh, and what would I, what would I say to you? You see, disillusionment, disenchantment with the church doesn't just happen with pastors. It happens with, well, it happens with people. Go to church for some period of time, maybe a long time, like eight years, longer, and you wake up one morning, Sunday morning, and you think, really, is, is like this it? Is this the church of Jesus Christ? Maybe, maybe that's how you ended up here. You woke up disillusioned, and you thought you'd try a new, a new church, one called Alliance, and, and maybe, just maybe, you woke up this morning with those same thoughts. Is, is this it? What would I say to you? Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, a young pastor who was coming up behind him. And, and Timothy is in Ephesus where things are, are quite, quite challenging. Ministry can be challenging. We have a saying around the church, 
the staff, every once in a while, we, we remind ourselves that ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we get that ministry is people. This church in Ephesus was only about 10 years old, but they'd already faced some significant challenges, false teaching. And it was coming from the elders. And so Paul and Timothy traveled to Ephesus where Paul removed the ringleaders of this heresy. He, he had to leave to go into his next ministry assignment. But he left this young Timothy to set things in order in the church. Now, when I, when I say young Timothy, most agree he was likely in his early 30s. You know, like, well, like I once was and like Michael and Pat and Scott. Well, Scott, not so he's in his older 30s. They're the young guys coming up, you see, behind us. And the, the elders that were still there in Ephesus, maybe even a lot of the church was probably older than Timothy, and they were asking the inevitable question that was asked me 30 years ago, what does this young punk have to offer us? So Timothy was likely overwhelmed with the responsibilities. Some suggest his natural bent was to be timid, more reserved. It's certainly not as strong a leader as Paul. He's still a young man. He has these overwhelming duties. So Paul writes to encourage him in this task of dealing with false teachers, of dealing with the church that was, well, it seems like it was looking down on him, or at least they were questioning his value as the young guy. And he encourages him with some words that have encouraged pastors for two millennia now. And, and, and frankly, they are words that I think identify some important duties of pastors, uh, important duties really of church leadership. And I think, I, I just think that maybe they can encourage you too. Perhaps in your disillusionment with the church. <laughs> what's, a young pastor, what's a young pastor to do? What is a church? What are we supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Now, I'm going to be, I'm going to be preaching to those, those young guys. I thought about making sit on, on the front row. I thought that would be a little awkward. <laughs> but I'm preaching to you also. Because, you see, as you face discouragements and disillusionments and disenchantments, I want to encourage you to weigh all of that. I want you to weigh this church. I'm going to listen to me very carefully. I want you to weigh this church in the balance against this text before us today. So let's look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses uh, 11 to 16 say this, and now we jump in the middle of a, of a unit. I'll tie it all together here in a moment. He says, Timothy, I want you to prescribe and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Timothy, Michael, Scott, Patrick, 
persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation. Lousy translation. You will save both yourself and those who hear you. This is what a young pastor, this is actually what all pastors, even us old ones, are supposed to do. More than that, this I'm suggesting today, this is what a church should look like. This is what a a church should pursue. This is what pastors look like. This is what church leadership looks like. This is what a church looks like. And inasmuch as it does, let us rejoice. And inasmuch as it doesn't, because I'm not going to stand up here today and suggest to you for one moment that we've got this all figured out. I'm not going to suggest to you for one moment that we are the perfect church. We are not. And as much as it, our church isn't these things, help us grow and help us to be both what God has called us to be and to do. Now, now again, we, we know there's false teaching in the church. Paul describes it in chapters 1, 4, and, and 6. At the beginning of this chapter, he called this false teaching doctrines of demons, which were actually causing some to fall away from the Christian faith. He says, I don't want you to have anything to do with this heresy. Then he reminded Timothy to keep on pointing these things out to the church. Keep on pointing out. Keep warning them about false teaching, which is something that I take great delight in doing. I know I probably have too much fun doing it, but listen, it's true. It's my responsibility to point out false teaching to you when it arises all around us. Make the gospel and sound doctrine your diet. I want you to consume it. Nourish yourself. Consume it every day and make the pursuit of godliness your daily exercise. You weren't here this week. Uh, last week I talked about how at New Year we make New Year's resolutions that usually have to do with diet and exercise. That's great. Make yourself healthy. Go ahead. Don't care. I want you to feed on the Word of God. That's your diet. And I want you to exercise yourself in godliness. And if you want to run, ride, go ahead. Now, verses 6 to 16, as I suggested, go together. We, we've just broken them down according to their two paragraphs. But, but, but again, it all goes together. Three times in this section, he uses the words, these things, uh, to tie it all together. It's a summary of what he's been talking about. He says, point these things out, prescribe and teach these things, take pains with these things, and we know that these things refer to the gospel truth as opposed to the false teaching that was permeating the church. Stay focused on these things. In these two paragraphs, Paul actually uses 12 imperatives. That's 12 commands that he gives to Timothy. Now, 10 of those uh, are in pairs, so we can actually reduce that to five and add the other two. We come up with seven commands in order for Timothy to face the challenges of ministry, in order for Timothy to be a good pastor. And I'm suggesting that we look closely at these and that we hold our spiritual leaders, our pastors, our elders, our ministry leaders, we, we hold them to these standards. I'm suggesting more. We should look at these and ask the question, is Alliance a good church? I'm serious. Are, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Are we focusing on the right things? And not only that, is I want you to get this here. I want you to know this because if God moves you to a new 
job, maybe a new town, or, or maybe he moves you to a new church. These are qualities that I'm suggesting you should look for. These commands form our outline. It goes like this. The first command is one of those pairs. We looked at it last week, verse 7. Have nothing to do with false teaching. Instead, on the other hand, discipline yourself for godliness. I, I could summarize by saying church leaders, church people, stay away from heresy. Be aware of it. Instead, pursue truth for the purpose of godliness. Big, long point. Se- second pair of commands is found in verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Third pair, verse 12, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Instead, be an example. Next command, singular command, um, give, verse 13, give attention to the Scripture. We're going to talk about that one. Verse, uh, next command, point five, verse 14, don't neglect your spiritual gift, Timothy. The next command, fourth pair of five, verse 15, take pains with these things and be absorbed in them. And we'll talk about what that means. And then last command, fifth pair, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself, pay close attention to your teaching and persevere in them. Now that's you might be writing fast and furiously. That's a, like a terrible outline. So let me simplify it for you. Let me g- simplify these seven commands as follows. Here you go. Are you ready? A good church should avoid heresy and pursue truth. We looked at that last week. A good church should command and teach truth. A good church, a good pastor should not quit but be an example. He should focus, the church should focus on scriptural truth. There should be a focus, I mean, there should be an attempt, an an intentional attempt to exercise gifts to advance truth. We should be consumed with truth. That That should be our life. Be absorbed in them. We're going to see what that means. Pay attention and persevere in truth. And all of a sudden, it starts to make sense. There's a, there's a theme that runs through this, a thread. It's truth. We, we understand that pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders are supposed to passionately pursue truth. And we know by now that this truth he's talking about is as opposed to what the, the false teachers are saying. It's the truth that's found in the gospel. I find this very interesting. You know that you can go to the bookstore today Christian bookstore, you can get on Amazon, do whatever you want to do, and you can find all kinds of books on how to grow a church, on how to be a good pastor, on how to be a good leader, and it's full of a bunch of crap. That wasn't in my notes. (laughs) And a little bit, he's going to tell Timothy to be an example in speech, and I just wasn't. He does not tell Timothy to research and employ the latest and greatest church growth gimmicks, you know, so that you can be a big church, because I guess that's successful, at least bigger than across the street. He does not advance certain programs. He does not highlight techniques that are sure to attract our consumer-driven culture. This is how you attract them. This is how you get them in the door, and this is how you entertain them. He wants this young pastor, and uh, and he wants this church in Ephesus, and frankly, he wants our church to be about one thing, biblical gospel truth. How's that for weighing a church in the balance? I think we pay way too much attention to whether or not I like the music 
whether or not I like the pastor, whether or not he makes me laugh, instead of biblical gospel truth. So look briefly at each of these commands. We covered the first pair last week, so let's start with the second pair, the second command, verse 11. Command says prescribe. I'm not know why my Bible has it translated prescribe. It doesn't mean prescribe. I can't even find a definition that means prescribe. It's command. Command Timothy and teach truth. <laughs> so here's Timothy. He gets his letter. He's a little timid. He's a little shaken by this overwhelming responsibility. And in the midst of this challenging situation where people may be questioning his position, Paul writes and says, Timothy, command these things. Don't be arrogant. But, but teach truth. Now, all these things that I've told you, how the church should be structured, chapters 2 and 3, how to f- battle heresy, chapters 1 and 4 that we've already looked at. Timothy, I know you're young. I know you're a bit reserved, maybe even a bit timid. Timothy, this is truth. Command and teach it. <laughs> 30 years ago when I um, be- began uh, ministry, um, I would occasionally even, I, I, would, I, I could t- get to teach some. And uh, I actually taught through the book of 1 Timothy. Now, you need to understand that most of my sermons today are in a landfill in Colorado Springs where they rightly belong. Somehow, don't know how, 1 Timothy made it through. It's in my office right now. It's a notebook about this, like handwritten yellow legal pages before I had a computer. I know that's shocking. <laughs> And um, I read my sermon this morning. I got here early and read my sermon from 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. And boy, did I say, you need to do what we say because Paul commands it. I was 27 when I taught that. Not very bright. Maybe 30 years ago, when I was first in ministry, and maybe a little less concern about youthful arrogance would have been in order. Maybe a little less dependence on enthusiasm and naive confidence. Maybe a little more confidence in truth. That's what he says. Timothy, you can command these things because these things, it has nothing to do with you, Timothy. These things are, are true. This tells me that authority, you see, is found in truth. Timothy, you're young, but authority is not found in an age. It's found in the truth of God's Word. Those of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. There have been times that your kids, somewhat younger than you, have come up to you and pointed out truth in the way that you're behaving. And while you're the authority over them, if you're a godly person, you recognize truth and accept what they say. See, authority isn't found in an age, it's found in truth. So command and teach these things because it's true. And so when young pastors and teachers and ministry leaders teach truth, when our young guys get up and preach, we listen and we weigh the, the text of Scripture not based on the speaker and his speaking ability, but on the truth of the text. Is it true? Does it square with Scripture? If so, we have been commanded, we have been taught, and we must obey. Now, I, 
I can say this, you see, because I'm not young anymore. If, I, if they stood up here, and Michael's in this one, if he stood up here and said that, like I did 30 years ago, you'd think, punk, and you'd be right. He is just a little. Just kidding. We are richly blessed. Timothy is not saying this here. Paul is. They are not saying this. I am. This is what the Scripture says. So what do young believers do? Point three. What, if they don't, what, what, what do they do? Point three, Michael. Timothy, I know you're young. I, I know this is challenging. Don't quit. Maybe I should have heard that a few years ago. Verse 12, don't let them look down on you because of your youthfulness, which tells me we should not look down on people because they're young if they speak truth. I know this now. Let me just pause right here. I know that this is a favorite verse of youth ministries, right? <laughs> youth groups, and this is a favorite of your youth pastor, right, to tell you, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. I just want to tell you that teenagers are young. They are children. <laughs> when Paul was writing to Timothy, there were two classes of men, young and old. Young men were considered young till they were 40. And if you look at when, when Paul took Timothy from Lystra and Acts, just 16 to compare it with the other, di- other uh, uh, narratives, most agree that Timothy was in his mid to early 30s. So still a young man, and it's Again, likely that the rest of the church leadership, to include those remaining elders who made, it, made the cut, were older. They were likely in the second group over 40. Don't let them look down on you. So, Timothy, what do you need to do? That's right. Stand up for yourself. Fight back. Fight your place. Demand respect. I'm not young. God, call me this, blah, blah, blah. No. Timothy, Paul says, instead, be an example. That's how you do it. Be an example to the believers and thereby earn their respect. That's the idea. You don't demand respect because of a position of authority. You earn respect by the way you live your life. This, by the way, is just more than just young pastors. This is like all, all of you who are still young. People will not despise you if they admire you. People will find it difficult to look down on you if they are looking up to you. That's the idea. Be an example. Paul, Peter told the elders that he was writing to the same thing and in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God. Don't lord it over them. Don't be arrogant. A lot of you charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. The temptation when leadership is questioned is to become stronger, arrogant, even tyrannical. Um, there is a significant difference as a shepherd between driving sheep and leading sheep. Shepherds, true shepherds, don't drive. They lead, and they lead by example. It gives five areas that needed attention in order to be an example. In your speech, in your conduct, love, faith, and purity. There's nothing hidden, no secret meanings there. Watch your mouth, right? We're talking to young people. (laughs) Watch your mouth. Watch your behavior, your love, which is to be the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Your faith, that's faithfulness. Be faithful and watch your personal Purity, which in this context carries sexual overtones. In a world then and well today where young people are sexually immoral, Timothy, flee youthful lusts. 
He'll tell them and say, be an example. We, we, we need that where young well, and old and where pastors are making a mess of Christianity by their infidelity and unfaith, sexual unfaithfulness. Be an example. Brings us to the next command. Focus on scriptural truth. I find this one incredibly interesting and quite needed today. We live at a time when the church of Jesus Christ is more concerned about attracting numbers and growth, statistics and entertainment and drawing crowds than they are the truth of God's Word. Pastors have become celebrities, and they actually think that what they have to say, that is their funny stories, their cute anecdotes, their attention-grabbing illustrations, their creative sermons, their entertainment uh, 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 prowess, and crowd-pleasing abilities are more important than God's Word. People come to hear me. They don't come to, are you kidding me? Paul tells Timothy something very specific. Until I come, we remember that Paul was intending to come back to Ephesus soon. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Incredibly important. This process was copied from the Jewish synagogue when a text would be read aloud. Then the meaning would be taught and an exhortation giving, do what it says. That's what Paul is encouraging here. Read the Word. Explain the Word. Um, or teach the Word and obey the Word. He often uh, commanded that his letters be read to the entire church. This is very important. This places the writings of the, of the apostles on par with the rest of Scripture. Read it, uh, explain it, and then do it. How can you explain it if you don't ever read it? Justin Martyr, an early church father, lived from 100 to 165 A.D., which means he was really early church father, really early guy, right after the time of the apostles. We're talking like the first generation, one of the earliest guys, and he wrote this. On, on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, an interesting way to refer to the, the, the New Testament, the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets, notice how they're put on same level, that's the Old Testament, are read as long as there is, as time permits. Then when the reader is finished, the president, I suppose that's somebody, a pastor, I don't know, speaks instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. From the earliest days when the church gathered, they read the Bible, they explained the Bible, and then encouraged obedience to the Bible. Scripture was central. John Stott comments, it was taken for granted from the beginning of Christian preaching, uh, from the beginning that Christian preaching would be expository preaching. That is that all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage which has been read. Again, we live in a time when Scripture is only marginally necessary in many churches. They may read a biblical text, but it's often... Uh, outside its context and often never really interacted with, never considered. I want to remind you that the central purpose of the gathered church is for the proclamation, teaching, and application of truth. This is, this is how you should weigh a church. This is how you should weigh this church. Please do not leave from here looking for a church that's going to tickle your ears and make you laugh and move your foot. Make your ears bleed. 
When you're looking at a church, ask the simple question, do they hold in highest value the Word of God? Do they teach it? Do they explain it and seek to understand it? And do they seek to apply it? In fact, Timothy, listen, um, give attention to these things, and you have what it takes to teach biblical truth. Next command, verse 14. Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. That's a lot of words there. Very simply, Paul is referring to when Timothy was set aside or placed into or ordained, that's the word we use now, ordination, ordained for the ministry. He talked about this back in chapter 1. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies made concerning you. He's going to talk about it again in 2 Timothy, in his second letter to Timothy, when he says in chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. From these passages we learn three significant things happened when Timothy was ordained. First, there was... There were apparently some prophecies concerning him, likely that God had called him into ministry. We, we saw that happen with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 in the church of, of Antioch. We, we, we read, it says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work which I have called them to do. Prophetic utterance. Same thing happened here. I've called Timothy. This is the work that I want him to do. Prophetic utterance. When a young man is called into ministry, whether it's through a a, a voice that he hears or the impression of the Holy Spirit on his heart, it is a prophetic word to his heart that he must obey. Which is why when I, I just got to tell you, which is why when I was in banking working like banker's hours, making lots of money for my banker friends in the room here, making lots of money, I could not wait to get back to ministry and make half as much money. God puts that in your heart. You've got to do it. Not only did he receive these prophecies, he received the spiritual gift necessary to do the job. In other words, God enables those he calls. He doesn't call the gifted, he gifts the called. Word for spiritual gift is charisma. It speaks of a divine enablement uh, given by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of serving the church. And let me be very perfectly clear. If you checked out, check back in. Because, listen, every believer has received a spiritual gift, not just pastors. Every believer has received the spiritual gift by which it is expected that you serve in the church, that you serve one another. That's an expectation. It doesn't have to be an official program, an official ministry, but you know, we need to be serving each other using our spiritual Gifts. So prophetic utterances, spiritual gift. Third, we see Paul and the presbytery laid hands on him again, just like they did with Paul and Barnabas in Acts. The presbytery is very simply referring to the group of, of elders, like we have done with some of our young men here, gathered around Timothy, gathered around Michael a couple of months ago. Perhaps then prophecies given, gift granted, laid hands on Timothy praying and committing him to the Lord and his work. Nothing necessarily mystical about the laying on of hands. It simply conveyed setting Timothy aside, affirming him with the authority of the work that he was called to do. Point is, Paul was reminding Timothy that he had been called by God through prophecy. He was gifted by God through a spiritual gift, and he was set aside, commissioned for the task by God's spiritual leaders called elders. 
We also remember that this letter was to be read to the entire church in Ephesus. So church, listen to me. This young man has authority to do what he is doing. Meaning, when our young men, called, gifted by God, affirmed by elders, speak truth, they do so with authority. We are commanded to listen, learn, and apply. Next command, another pair, verse 15. I'm going to move through these last ones very quickly. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. These things, remember, we're talking about gospel truth. So that your progress will be evident. You're young. You you be absorbed in the word of God, in the scripture, and gospel truth, and allow people to see it changing your life. Your growth will be evident. I summarize this point with be consumed with truth. You see, the word absorbed is in the italics, which means it's not in the original Greek text. Literally, Paul says, take pains, man. Do whatever it takes to get this stuff in. Be in them is is a literal translation. Be consumed with biblical truth found in the gospel so that it becomes you. You can't help but speak the truth of God's word, people see it, hang around, you get tired of hearing the gospel from you. It brings us the last command, last pair of imperatives, verse 16. Timothy, I command you to pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. In order for a pastor to properly shepherd others, he must first nourish himself. He said that back in verse 6. Timothy, I want you to make this your regular diet. I want you to nourish yourself in the Word of God. Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. He, he, he had told the Ephesian elders earlier when he warned them about coming wolves, which had now come. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock. Same idea here. Timothy, false teaching has come. So, so watch yourself. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, false teaching is all around us. Watch yourself. Don't let it suck you in. Pay attention to yourself, to the, to the faith, to, your, to what you believe. Don't be sucked in by the stuff that's so readily available out there. If you do this, you will ensure salvation. That's actually... An imperative, he actually says, by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And you go, I don't think I like the way that sounds. What does that that mean? That's a little confusing. You, You say, I thought salvation was by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. What is he doing telling Timothy, if you do these things, you will save yourself? Not only that, what is he doing telling this young pastor that by that that by committing to these things, he will save his his people? I I didn't think we did anything to be saved. I thought it was something that God did, and you'd be right. Paul is simply contrasting Timothy and his gospel message with the false teachers and their false message. Timothy, by staying faithful to gospel truth, you, you prove the reality of your own faith. You are working out your faith with fear and trembling, all right? You are saving yourself as the idea. You are being sanctified. You are proving the reality of faith. And as you preach gospel truth, not heresy, I can actually say that you will save those who hear you and are rightly converted. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. Who preaches that? Preachers. You see, that's what he's saying here. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, I become all things to all people so that I might by any means save some. 
So, so, so I can say, as you obey the gospel, as you live the gospel, and as you proclaim the gospel, and you share the gospel with others, you are saving them. Yes, Jesus is doing it, and he's using you to proclaim the truth. That's, that's the idea here. I want you to hear what Paul says here about a faithful pastor and a faithful church. It is a pastor and a church that is faithfully committed to the gospel found in the Word of God. The faithful church is not one that is necessarily the largest or, 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 the, or, or, or has all of the bells and, and, and whistles, you know, and is attracting all of the crowds. It is not necessarily the place that has the most, I want to say this very gently, but very strongly. Can you do that gently, strongly at the same time? It is not necessarily the place that has the most dynamic worship and the most exciting preaching, whatever that is. The faithful church with faithful leadership does the following. It avoids heresy and commits itself to truth. Its leaders, pastors, elders, ministry leaders command and teach truth found in the Word of God. Its leaders and people, regardless of age, are examples of truth seen in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity. The, the faithful church focuses on Scripture, its reading, its proclamation, and its application. The faithful church exercises its God-given gifts to serve one another. The faithful church is consumed with the truth of the Word of God. We cannot get enough of the Word of God. I, I, I trust that as you've been around here for a little while that you find out that we are a people who are really serious about the Bible. Consumed with the Word of God, which means the faithful church is aware of doctrines of demons and pay close attention to its teaching and to itself. Which means, finally, the faithful church desires to see people truly saved. We want to see people believe the gospel and turn from false teaching and turn from false religions. We want to see them saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, that is the true church. I trust that you find that kind of church here at ABF. And I trust that if we ever stray and if we err, and I know that we have, I trust, I plead with you to help us correct the ship, to right the ship, and help us to stay faithfully committed to the Word of God. Let's stand for prayer.